Hey, hi. This is Eli. Um, welcome to episode 14 of this podcast about um, craft, making things, um, where I'm going to tell you some stories about stuff. Uh, this one is going to be about cast iron because I think that um, cast iron is. I mean, it's one of my favorite materials. um, You know, it's an element, a pure element. So um, there's an exciting part of that, that it's just, it is a kind of, in its purest form, it is what we're dealing with, uh, like gold and silver and neon, uh, a really kind of base way to address your materials um so cast iron I use it a lot in um glass shops but also I use it all the time in my kitchen I love to cook with it on it um and I love to use it in glass shops. Um, It's really great in a glass shop because you can keep it at 900 or 1,000 degrees and it doesn't oxidize at that temperature. It just stays very stable. Uh, Steel will oxidize at that temperature. Um, oh damn I'm trying to get to Palo Alto right now listen I'm on the freeway right now I'm trying to get to Palo Alto and I'm on the 80 and I got I'm on this 580 to 880 interchange <sighs> doggy this is uh, this is challenging or an old guy like me. Um, I think I can do it. Downtown Oakland, Hayward, Stockton. That's me. So, we can do this little merge here. I gotta go to Palo Alto, I gotta go make some um, pumpkins tonight. And, uh, I just spent the whole day underneath a furnace grinding and cutting and welding these parts together. There's a shop in Richmond, the East Bay, got this old furnace. It's like the hub consolidated style. It's like the wet dog, old square jobby weighs 5,000 pounds capacity somewhere in the 300 to 500 pound range sometimes referred to as a day tank um though you'd be using it at night too um it is a like a square inside crucible rather than a pot it's like a slab built 
crucible it's like all the parts are made out of slabs and you kind of dry fit them together um East 580. I don't think that's where I want to go. Hold up a second. Okay, I was definitely going the wrong direction. I definitely wanted the 880. I don't know why I thought I wanted the 580. I love the 580. It's such a great route. But I want to take, now I got to take the 580 to the 980 to the 880. Then I'm good. That's not confusing at all, right? I'm trying to um, learn these roads and take them without having to look at the map. Um, which definitely causes these moments of pure confusion. But I think I live a life of uh, pure confusion. I kind of ride on the, the joy of these moments of fear and confusion. Um, but man, this 980 is clear. And I got this nice view of downtown Oakland. It's really a beautiful day today. The sun's coming out. Um, Here's the part where I gotta perform here. There's the 980. But don't take the exit there. Getting on to the 980 west here, and then it's gonna connect to the 880 south. I mean, this is almost the smarter route here. I bet this is where the internet would have sent me. So I spent all day underneath this furnace. I think this is important to explain to you. Sorry, I'm bouncing around here. But uh, this guy's got this furnace, a glass-blowing furnace. Um, big square, brick-built. The, the tank of glass inside is, like, built with four-inch slabs. Uh, out of a high heat ceramic, uh, you know, a small little bathtub, a sink of glass. Uh, and that's all kind of built, has refractory bricks and KO wool, uh, high heat silica fabric stuff that's wrapped around it. And then the burner, an eclipse burner, um, is blasting the heat on top of it. Um, has an well, it has an actuator on it, uh, which is cool to see. Not a lot of these eclipse burners in the run this way so this is great to see it's old school it's pretty familiar in that kind of like late 90s early 2000s era glass equipment uh, so I've been running the two inch gas pipe to it which I had that big long exciting black iron pipe episode um, so ran the black iron pipe and then the important thing was to get this thing 21 and a half inches off the ground so that it was at the height of this old loading dock that he had that he wanted to um, put this thing on so that you could stand on the loading dock and then the furnace is off of the loading dock 
but at the height as if it were on the floor, but it's not on the floor. It's elevated by three inch pipe. So it's like black iron pipe, but not being used as plumbing pipe, being used as structural pipe. Three inch diameter pipe that is schedule 80, so thick wall, and it is vertical 21 inch pieces with flanges welded at the bottom so that the flanges, circle flanges at the bottom that are bolted onto the concrete floor. And so those vertical pipes also are have a three inch square tube schedule 80 cross members horizontal two of those between the two pipes so they're kind of like a cradle that holds this furnace up 21 inches so that's been a big project is like you know designing this cradle package that holds the furnace up and it's like this is you know kind of standard glass shop is like Here's the equipment we have. We have this welder and this angle grinder, and then we have this pipe. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the boss man says, I think that this stuff is strong enough to hold that stuff. And I mean, knowing pipe, I know that it is. I can do some math, and I think I've got the system is basically designed to hold 20,000 pounds in the furnaces. 5,000. It's actually designed for 20,000 at shear strength. So if it were to to be sideways off the wall it could hang at 20 and it could hang even more if I was hanging it vertically off the ceiling but I'm not I just put it into the floor but I'm thinking about earthquake stuff so I'm making it as we say in the business built shit tough so I built this thing shit tough with Kind of, I mean, it's a the welder is certainly adequate. It's a smaller welder. It's a Millermatic 210, which is, I'm not using it at full power, which is always nice. Um, and it's a super adequate machine for it, but definitely is like shop style of like underneath it with an angle grinder doing stuff that would be nice to be bench building things and making crisper parts with crisper things but it's also um usually the way i build things so um it's a big big furnace up in the air so we got that cradle built and then we put it on picked up this furnace and the furnace itself the footprint is about four foot by five foot so 42 by 54 inches not that big of a footprint and like you know not much more than six feet tall maybe at the very peak it's you know it's very bottom heavy because of the, all the refractor in the bottom um though it is, it's heavy at the top because of the crown um and so i built the cradle bolted it into i bolted the verticals into the ground and then welded the horizontals across and then placed the furnace on top of that and so we got that set and then today i was welding in some 45s to reinforce the base um just to make it even more shit tough um next we got to finish running the plumbing and electric to it so i got more black iron pipe and then 
maybe I'm going to do electric, but maybe there's some electricians coming. I guess in California, supposedly, um, if you, you don't have to be a licensed electrician to run wiring. You just have to do it all right to exact code. Um, so I do, I imagine I might have to run electricity to it. So I should, we should talk about electricity at some point and like how to run wires, um, and what, what you're dealing with when you're running wires and why you would do things certain ways. Um, I think I can give you a pretty good idea of how to do that. (laughs) Uh, so, um, was grinding metal underneath in a 20 inch space all day. Right, because uh, really, really like the iron, the iron really um, dries out my skin. So I mean, skin is all really dry from all the iron. And then um, I wonder if it's the iron oxidizing, like from the oxygen and removing the oxygen on my flesh. It's a good question. I should know more about that stuff. Um, but I do know if I spend all day grinding and cutting or welding, I always am more... Um, my skin's really dry. Okay. Up that up the lotion uh, action here. So what do we want to talk about? We want to talk about iron. We want to talk about cast iron. Because it is such an important material. Because you can, like I was saying, you can keep it at heat at 900 degrees and it doesn't oxidize. Um, Where, like, steel, a steel alloy, like mild steel, will generally oxidize. High carbon steel won't oxidize as much. It won't spit off as much scale. It still will, but it will move more. Iron doesn't want to move. It'll move a little bit, but it's really stable. It's why you would build your stove in your house, your little wood stove. Why those are cast iron is because they can really handle the heat. They don't move too much. There's a little flexibility. You build them to be able to flex a little bit, but they really just like stay super stable and they don't oxidize so they don't it takes a long time for them to rust out and a long time for them to warp and they will occasionally warp and there's like inside plates that'll take the heat but that's because it gets above a thousand degrees once you get it into that red warm um you will get a little movement and a little bit of oxidization um but in a glass shop it's great because like if you wanted to make a mold um, if you want to pour a glass into it at 1,000 degrees or if you wanted to um, blow glass into it, um, it can sit at 1,000 degrees and it doesn't, um, doesn't stick to it and it doesn't oxidize. You can get it to stick if you get it into that red place. But if you get it into, if you keep it in that thousand degree range, you can keep it from sticking. Um, And we'll also use, there's like plates, like a roll up plate, call them, 
a cane plate. You use a cane plate in a hot shot, um, and you keep that on a you know on a burner, on a hot plate. It's got little ridges on it. Kind of looks like a um, like a griddle, uh, and it it's got these little ribs on it that then it'll you can place little rods of cane like pencil size pieces of glass could lay them out and you could roll them up onto the side of a bubble um so and those cane plates and those little rib things that look like a griddle you can actually there are certain griddles that actually have that kind of ribbing on it that's really perfect for um this exact project um and the so there's certain like there's some certain you know electric griddle top that has these ones that I've used a um to just to get a smooth plate I haven't found which one it is that has the perfect little ribs on it um but there's like a waffle iron or not a waffle iron like a a two burner 20 inch by 12 inch sort of size um two burner uh pancake griddle that's what i'm thinking um and then on one side it has some like little ribs but they're pretty wide spaced ribs they're not the right like tiny little griddle ribs that are great for but so I've used those in the hot chop and those are great because you can just stick it on a hot plate and it just sits all day. And actually, as long as you keep it pretty warm, it doesn't rust. It will, you can get some rust on them when, if they're sitting at room temp and especially if you get it hot and let it cool down, it can pick up some moisture just from moisture in the air, but you can also just keep them a little oiled. And then once you get them to hot, that oil will burn off again. So, if you want them to not stick or be super smooth and have no texture, you can polish them. Like, you take that pancake griddle, you grind it down flat, which is also what you might want to do to your cast iron for cooking on. And this is where the two have kind of intersected for me. Um... And another reason I just love cast iron is this kind of like pure element of a material. It's got some magic to it. It is a crystalline of this like raw element. And you can make some magic art with it. And you can also cook some magic snacks with it. So the old timey cast iron griddles, um, Wagner's and Griswolds are really great and really light, thin cast. And this is, uh, I believe these are all ductile gray iron. Um, And they're thin cast, cast iron. And here's the part that I have not, I haven't been able to figure out exactly how they were made. Um, some people have said that they were probably sand cast with a fine sand. Um, 
and the it would have been too cost prohibitive to have a shell made uh, of them and so they probably would have been cast in sand but some of the old ones I've had are either they're either plaster cast or shell cast sorry it's shell cast or um they are turned on a lathe both of which essentially would be cost prohibitive um that it those are two really expensive ways to make cast iron uh that if your shell if you're making a shell you're doing a lost wax and then you're making a shell I mean maybe there's a way though to do a shell on a wood template I hadn't really thought about that but you can make a wood pattern because generally if you're doing sand casting you're going to make a wood pattern like you make a wood shape and you put and you pack the sand around that and then you pour the hot metal into that sand and you could get a really fine fine detail but the old Wagners and Griswolds like there is turn marks on them from turning on a lathe and whether those turn marks come from actually turning on a lathe or from a piece of wood that has turn marks on it and that that shows up either you're getting it from a shell uh, which is a wet slurry of clay that you would cast the positive in which i think now now that i think i I bet you could do a shell on a pattern um i'm used to doing a shell on a on a wax but you could do it on a pattern i bet um and so i have not got to the bottom of how these old cast iron were made so perfectly but i do know that the new cast iron like lodge brand and there's a couple different like larger brands that now are made in a way rougher sand they're thicker and it's a heavier sand heavier grit sand to cast it and so they come out actually like pretty rough um and the surface is both if you use them in a glass shop like it's a lot of texture and so it's a little more toothy and grabby or if you're using them in the kitchen, um, they're, it's like if you're trying to get that perfect crispy sear on your fish or your steak, especially like a halibut, like you want it to be like, you want to sear it and then you want to deglaze it and you want to flip it. Like you can't be messing with like a gritty pan. You need your pan to be like really glossy smooth. And you're not going to get a good, really good crisp unless you're using something like, like a, a cast iron. It just, you just don't get the same um, flavor and texture unless you're going straight into steel. And the heat, the way the heat works and it holds its heat, it, there's just nothing like cooking in cast iron. I mean, you can a high-carbon steel can be 
have some really great moments. And I bet, like, a really thick aluminum would work. But the thing is, aluminum doesn't work unless it's got a coating on it because aluminum oxidizes. Like, aluminum is unstable and so, and really toxic. And so you've got to coat it in something like Teflon, which is also incredibly toxic. Um, and so, and then you got to seal that in some polyurethane, which is, is also wonderfully toxic. Um, so cast iron is the obvious solution. Um, but you're going to want, if you're going to get new cast iron, if you don't have very many dollars like me, and you're trying to make some cast iron things happen on a budget, um, then you're going to want to take this sand cast cast iron that's quite rough and take a flap disc to it on an angle grinder. A flap disc is like a bunch of pieces of sandpaper that are on a little four and a half inch disc. And um, it's, you know, it's called a flap disc because they look like little flaps. And those are really great for essentially sanding this stuff down. There's uh, there's a couple of other ways you could do it. A grinding wheel is going to be too aggressive, but if you're careful, you can use a regular grinding wheel. Just gently, like, work it down and, like, take the tooth off, but don't go all the way down with it, and then get a flap disc. The flap discs are nice because they're really aggressive and they leave a nice finish. Um, and so you can really... And you can kind of get... a a smoother grind than you can with a grinding wheel. But there are other, like, there are other kind of, like, sanding wheels and, like, even, like, a Velcro sanding wheel, which is a little crazy to use. But there's other kind of um, ways. And if you know what you're doing, you might have some more better ways to do this but um if you don't know what you're doing like me and you want to just grind this stuff down then you're going to want to get an ink grinder with a flap disc on it and probably start with a 60 grit and just like take some of that tooth off and then move up into an i mean 80 is fine an 80 is fine 120 is great but it's just it's not as aggressive in it at all but it will leave a really nice polish and then you get that thing all polished and crispy on the inside crispy as in glossy smooth and um and then you're going to clean it and then you're ready to accept a good seasoning now let's talk about seasoning your cast iron because i feel like seasoning of cast iron is such a it's so fraught um you know it's nice to season it but you don't fucking need to and it's not like you have to season it um it's a you can look you can stick it in the dishwasher you're not going to ruin your cast iron it's made of iron you can't you could stick soap in there it's okay you can soap it and you can scrub it and then you can stick it in the dishwasher 
Uh, it's going to come out really clean and raw and it'll want to rust and you might want to oil it, but also the amount of oxidization, the amount of rust it produces is pretty minimal because cast iron is so stable. And that rust, part of the reason you use cast iron is so that you don't get anemic. So you want that iron in your blood. So that rust is actually great stuff. Keeps you nice and stable. Um, so the way that I treat my cast iron in the kitchen um is i just rinse it and scrub it like i keep a little like a a brush scrubber for it so i don't really use soap i don't have to it's not that i wouldn't and i think that if you think that you got to treat it a certain way and you want to get upset about it that's an issue too it's like the guy at the bike shop um so what you're going to want to do is, well, what I do, and you ain't got to do this, is use a little scrubby brush on your cast iron, and you can just scrub it to get the chunks off, and then dry it on the burger. Uh, if you leave it on the burn, you forget like I do regularly and you leave it on the burner and it gets really hot and it kind of smokes off all the oil and it looks kind of gray instead of black, then you could oil it. Um, I just use olive oil. I used to use Buttermore, but I don't really do dairy. So I just use olive oil, which works great. Avocado oil works great. Coconut oil works great. Um, oil, any kind of oil works great. Now, if you really want to season it and give it that nice, like, essentially you're creating a polymer out of that oil. You're thickening that oil. You're turning it into a polymer. And it's like, a, you know, it's what Teflon is really up to also um, as a polymer. And if you want to make that really intense oil coating on there, you can do it a couple ways. You can do it on the burner uh, just by heating it and rubbing oil on it. If you put a little olive oil on a paper towel and you wipe it on there and rub it and then just like let it smoke a little bit on the burner and then wipe it some more on there, um, and if you do that a couple times, you can get a nice coating. You can also put it in the oven at 400, 450 degrees and do that. If you put it upside down, you won't get the oil to pool on it. Put it upside down and bake it in the oven and the oil will not pool in there. If you get the oil pooling in there and then you bake that, you can get these like thick polymer goo chunks in there that are going to be not as desirable because those can come off and they can kind of you get them in your snacks and uh, and they um, will also not be as 
um, non-stick, which is kind of what you're going for with this coating. But having done a bunch of seasoning of cast irons, I'm not totally convinced that the seasoning really does makes a huge difference in the non-sticking. More so, I've found the actual temperature that you put the food into the cast iron is what makes the most difference. It's like getting that heat just right um, is what can make the difference in sticking and non-sticking and having the oil in there. Having some oil in there and at the right temp. Because if you go in there without the right oil and it's like the oil's smoking or just way too fucking hot, you can get that shit to stick. Um, But if you bring it in at just the right heat... And sometimes, you know, you're going to, like, you're putting that fish or that steak in there. Like, you want a little stick. You want that sear to grab a little bit. You want it hot enough to be grabbing and searing because you want a little burnt flavor in there. And that's part of what that deglazing is doing. And if you're deglazing, especially with, like, a vinegar and you're adding an acid in there, you're going to be degrading that seasoning anyways. And do you really want to just like put more polymers that you've made by, you know, into your snacks? Maybe not. Um, Cause it's great. You know, you don't need it. And the cast iron is really sturdy. And if you're like really freaked out about your cast iron coating, you're only using wood in there and you're trying to keep seasoning you're not really paying attention to your snacks and that's the important thing also you want to like metal on there to scrape it so that you can get some of that iron into your blood so you stop being so damn anemic um so oil it and then wash it and then cook your tomato sauce in your fucking cast iron it's okay it's all right. You can put the tomato sauce in there. It's okay to put acid in a cast iron. It's great. That tomato sauce acid is not as strong as cast iron. Cast iron is very strong. It's very, very stable. Um, I had, for a long time, I've had generations of cast iron passed down to me. I have a couple of small pans left now. Um, I lost a couple last one well I left one in New Orleans and I got a new one in Texas and then I had all my my moving truck was stolen and I uh, they got my fucking caster they found the truck and they didn't want any of my kitchen stuff but they did steal my caster it's a nice fucking caster um Wagner's and Griswold's Ooh those are nice ones. But man, I tell you what, an old Sandcast Lodge is a great thing too. So, um Cast iron. If it's not old timey I mean the thing about the old timey Griswolds and Wagner's is that they're really light. They're thin. It's so thin, which is like, I they must have fucking shell cast them. They must have been doing this. Like, I mean, it was like this crazy time when like, you know, 
people were making things in a really fancy ways. Ways that, like, as makers, like, we just can't even understand that they were doing it. Like, they were hand-blowing light bulbs. Like, we don't think, like, that does not, that is not very cost-effective, you know? But, um, turns out, that's the way things got used to make. That's the way things used to get made. So, um, the nice thing about these old pans is they're really light. The not-so-nice thing is that they're really expensive and, like, people are really, like, they'd be overcharging for um, a piece of iron. But um, if you're trying not, if you're not trying to get the name brand on there, like with the perfect Griswold stamp and a number eight, you can find some pretty good pans that will be, will last you for one kabillion years. Um, and if you don't get your moving truck stolen, then um, you can pass them on to your to your grandkids. Uh, so the cast iron um, in the hot shop, you're gonna treat in a similar way. You don't need to oil it because when it's at nine hundred to a thousand degrees, um, that oil that that oil burns right off, um, and so it's a great material in that way. Um, that you can use it in the shop. Use your same pan pour some hot glass on it you do have to be careful about pouring hot glass on it if you take a thousand degrees to room temperature cast iron you have to be careful about breaking it because it is brittle enough you could break it and i think i talked about welding it and brazing it if you're going to use something in the hot shop and you actually want to get it this hot you're going to want to weld it rather than braze it and if you're welding it it's tricky because you're going to need to weld it with cast iron you're going to need to get the whole thing really hot and then you're still going to need to think about the grain and the way the grain is lying. Um, and so getting the whole thing red hot and readjusting that is important. Um, taking a look at old um, anchors and the way they made the old anchors and the way they would think about the grain on those can kind of help you... Um, think about some of those cast iron if you really want to think about cast iron which I do um, I think actually one of the things I wanted to describe to you so let's go back to food and then I have a couple things to talk about in the hot shop and and the making of iron um, in a kind of an iron an iron pour um, is let's talk about eggs eggs are delicious I have a couple of little 6 inch cast iron like Wagner Chris Wald the 6 inch pans like the little little ones egg pans sometimes they're called um, and these little fuckers these ones are nice polish on the inside very smooth and I just keep them a little oily but I don't season them. And there's two kinds of ways I like to make the eggs. Um, I like them over medium. 
so that means I flip them over and they're medium. So that means it's all cooked on the white and the yellow, the yolk's going to be soft and slightly runny on the inside, but it will be like sealed cooked on the outside. Um, and then the two ways that I'll cook it is either with the crispier white. So there's like a little crizzle and like a crisp to the, to the white. Um, it almost gets kind of yellow and like bubbly a little bit. And then there's another way that is like, it's not frizzle fried like that it's just like almost like the texture of like a hard boiled egg where it's like you know dense but it does there's no there's no crisp to it um and i kind of like that way right now better and at times i've really enjoyed the crispy part and like especially like if you put it on potatoes and it's like got crispy and like crispy potato and like crispy egg and then you got that runny yolk it's really amazing but i feel like i've kind of turned the corner on really enjoying the egg just being perfectly cooked um and not crisp and so that method and in these little pans I've been cooking three eggs for myself in the morning. And I switched from two eggs to three eggs. I feel like that was a good transition. I was nervous about eggs. But look, eggs are fucking great. And we should eat them and not be so scared of eggs. Um, but I feel like everyone's not scared of eggs now. Now the price is going through the roof. So there we go. That's what I get for eating so many eggs. So I'll warm the pan up but not get it hot or smoky. And if I get it hot, that's when I can get that crisp and really like a quick fry, like the kind of egg you imagine you might get at a diner if you really wanted a perfect over medium egg at a diner. It's gonna have some, it's gonna have a little heat on that griddle and it's gonna sizzle. Where if I put these three eggs into my number six, especially three eggs in a number six, like they're going to, they're not going to be, the way that they fill up the pan is going to be fully round. Like they're going to fill up the pan rather than the shape of the egg. Like the shape of the egg that you might get off the griddle from the diner, it's going to have, it's going to have some like asymmetrical shape to it. Where if I'm doing it in the pan with three eggs, that's enough egg white to fill that whole thing. Um, And so it will come out round. It doesn't have the shape of the egg. And that is part of what has brought me to this like little bit slow cook. It's like to get that to cook just right. I don't want it too hot because if I get that, if I really crisp it, then it ends up not cooking my white all the way through. Like there's a little bit of white that's in the middle that's still soft. And I can handle that. I can handle that, but I'm not trying to love that. Um, But I do love just perfectly cooking my whites. Uh, And so I keep it a little on the cooler side. And 
but it's still warm. It's still warm. Like when I pour the oil in, it like bunches up. It doesn't smoke. It's almost like the legs of wine when you like spin the wine and you get the legs. It's like the legs of the oil. Like it kind of like legs on the pan when you roll the oil in the pan. And I'm probably putting a teaspoon, uh, t- two teaspoons even, of oil. I'm not really scared of the olive oil. Um, and then roll the oil around in the hot pan. And if it's smoking, I know that um, it is is hot and it's going to crisp it. And that's great for two eggs crisp but if i'm doing three eggs it's gonna be too crispy it's too crispy crunchy too much too much um and so just on the lower side of heat um and then crack the three eggs in there and then the spatula that you're gonna want for this situation it's the really flexible kind of spatula. It's a really, it's like a spring steel, um, a really thin grade. It used to be like the really crappy, like cookie spatula with the black plastic handle that you always melt on the burners. Like that spatula is the best spatula for this situation because you want to be able to kind of roll around the side of the eggs and then flexibly kind of push underneath it because there might be a little bit that'll stick, a little grab a little bit. You're not having to scrape the whole thing. If you have to scrape the whole thing and it's sticky, then that's probably also a sign that it was too hot or that you like your eggs a little on the crispier side, and that's also okay too. Um, a spatula is just really rigid is going to be harder to get in that corner around the egg and it's going to be harder to really release that egg if your spatula is really hard um so often i'm turning the spatula upside down and scraping around the corners and then kind of teasing it underneath and once i got all the way flipped um i'll use the spatula to grab it um If you're really feeling fancy, you can flip it by hand. Like, you can just do the flip of the wrist, but you're probably going to splatter oil on yourself. It's going to look cool, but nobody likes a hero. Um, So, you're going to use the spatula, and you're going to carefully flip it over so you don't break your yolk, because you're trying not to break the yolk, because you want it to be just perfect. And so now that you've made yourself some perfect eggs... Flip it over. Well, first, you can flip it over, put it back on the heat for a second, but then you just turn the heat off and let it just coast into perfect cooking. It's cooling down a little bit. It's cooking. It's finished cooking the whites. You got your eyes on it. Maybe you even touch the yolk and feel the yolk so that you know where you are with the yolk. Um, It's a great way to check that egg. And that, with the cast iron, will work fine. It's going to work fine. Um, and I think that that's like, I feel like I used to check my cast iron pans of seasoning to see if it was working with eggs. Like if it's, if egg isn't sticking, then the seasoning is good. But then I kind of figured out, I was like, if I just heat it right and get the oil just right, the seasoning doesn't need to be that great. Um, 
maybe it was cooking crepes cooking crepes in a cast iron pan so crepes with a lot of butter in the recipe like two sticks of butter to two cups of flour sort of crepe and if you got that much melted butter in your batter you don't even need to oil the pan maybe the first time the first batch of crepe you wipe a little butter in there but you don't need to put any more butter in there um it's just the butter that's in that crepe batter is going to be enough and that that to me was the perfect seasoning because it's really just like it's like you want to absorb some oil into the surface and the metals will absorb the oil into the surface a little bit um it will sit on the surface but it'll absorb into it um like a good like carbon steel knife like you want to keep it oiled and the oil will absorb into it over the years i mean you can get that oil off and you can heat that oil out of there pretty quickly but um keeping it oil oh man i'm getting like so distracted by these thoughts of eggs and knives and like i wish i was in a kitchen and just having some snacks right now driving into the sunset though about to get on highway 101 i do love getting on highway 101 wherever i am if i'm in the bay area or if i'm in washington washington 101 is really beautiful all the way up and around the corner of the peninsula there and then those little moments in oregon where you're just like you're lost you're way the fuck out there 101 is pretty magic um so now i feel like i should just jump to like cast iron pouring iron and like making like a cupola and making iron out of that cupola and you know what blows me away is that when you're making iron and you're melting it down um in a cupola furnace you're gonna put coal or coke like a pure form of this coal into the crucible into the pot of iron and this is where the kind of magic of like iron pouring and I think why it's so fascinating and interesting is that um, you are mixing the iron with the coke in the crucible and it is both a heating element it's like the coke is burning inside of the metal and it's keeping the heat and adding heat to it but it's also like it's part of the chemistry of it um and then you're you know you're pulling off the glasses out of there like it's pulling these silicas out and and the the coke and the way that it's interacting with the iron is fluxing the glass fluxing the iron to create 
not to create the glass, but to bond with the silica that then create. I guess that does create the glass because the silica is the pure element, but glass is often the fluxed version of silica. Um, um, your pure silica is going to be is going to have a coefficient of expansion of zero, and your interaction with pure silica might be if you are too adapts. If you're freebasing weed oil, then the little banger, the Quave Club banger, uh, is going to be made out of pure silica uh, quartz crystal, and this quartz crystal is often used in scientific apparatus. It's even more magic than boro. Boro silica is fluxed with borax, and it has a very low coefficient of expansion. But magic glass, pure silica glass, has a coefficient of expansion of zero. You know, there's a legend I've heard in hot shops of there was a. There was a king at one point, and somebody came before this king, some maker, one of us, and had a piece of glass and was like, I've got magic glass for you. And this is like, you know, before the glass industry was strong, before we had Boro. And this guy is like, you know, this weirdo science maker. Um, some sort of weird alchemist really is like I've got this magic glass and it is unbreakable it takes the glass and throws it on the ground and it doesn't break you know which is what it's like quartz crystal boro has some elements like this but like you know really strong glass is really pure silica crystal and and so the king is amazed wow you know How'd you do that? Does anybody else know these secrets? He's like, I'm the only one. Nobody else knows these secrets. He's like, you sure? Are you the only one? He's like, yep, it's just me. King's like, wow, perfect. All right, off with his head. And so they kill this guy. And that's it. That was the, you know, somebody had figured out how to really work with the pure silica crystal. Um, but it was too threatening to... I mean, I guess from whatever I said, the story was around the time of like the 1400s and probably like, you know, one of Leonardo da Vinci's buddies um, who knows how to make this shit and is like figured out how to make some magic glass. But it's too competitive to the glass industry that exists, which was fueling massive um, church and state run activities. Um, and of course, you need to. You know, you need it to be able to break to for this stuff to really work. If it's not, if it doesn't break, um, then you know the obsolescence is removed from the object, and you remove a huge part of the demand uh, of the glass. It's very um, glass is really wonderful. It's really archival and uh, non-reactive. And in its flux state, in the soda-lime state, um, is very uh, fragile. And therefore, gives you the comebacks. So, um, 
that's a fun story. That's a fun story. I have no idea if it's really true or not, but I do love it as a story. And it's fun to have these these stories. Think about being the one. <laughs> I think about being the one that would have figured it out and got my head chopped off for being so smart. Um, but let's see. So we're pouring iron. An iron pour is where you would have a cupola furnace, which is a um, an elevated vertical furnace that you feed the fuel, which is coke, and the iron, the um, the metal you're melting down from the top, and then you pour it out of the bottom. Um, you have a you know like a five gallon bucket size crucible is probably like the standard smaller like if you're gonna have an iron pour at a you know at a school or something this would be kind of the size you might work with you know industry you would have a much larger amount but this would be you know in the 100 to 200 to 500 pound amount per pour and you might be pouring a thousand or a couple thousand pounds um and i guess it's probably yeah probably closer to 500 pounds in that size so you have in this crucible area um you have coke and and uh iron that's going to be in there and you're also you the fuel is going to be coke but also propane and then occasionally you're going to use an oxygen to um be able to bring the heat up of that burn though you can get away without oxygen and you can potentially get away without propane but generally you're going to need some propane um, especially to get it started and warmed up um, and then you can just this is the part that just blows me away as a glass blower so you can just put the fuel and your m- medium the, the stuff you're trying to melt all together in one where glass like you've got to be like glass and it's purity of glass is like it's so important to kind of keep it separate from your fuel like especially if you're doing a dirty fuel source like coal or wood or something you have to like be careful about the um contaminating the glass or with metal you're actually like with the iron you're actually like that carbon that's in the coke that's being added in there is part of the chemistry of the finished metal that you're making um and so then that coke will then also help flux that glass and then the glass being the slag this kind of black glass um very tough glass that comes out and will generally float to the top because the glass can be lighter than the metal. And so you have like this pot inside there. It's got a tripod or something. It's got, you know, legs and it's got a big chimney shoot up the top. So it's this crucible is like a five gallon bucket inside there and then refractory walls and then a big tall chute um, 
up the top that you're going to then have a ladder that you can throw in your um, maybe it's broken down iron pieces you could certainly start with an iron um, that you had harvested like whether it was kind of mined iron ore or rocks with a high iron content and then those would melt off and the glass could melt off of those also um, there's a couple different ways that you could get to the iron i mean generally these days it's like you're breaking down radiators and um disc brakes from cars because that's where the iron is available and it's available in a plentiful amount in america in those um in those forms so generally an iron pour is going to use um that as the raw material so it's going to be broken down radiators and then the coal the coke that you might even just be getting from a manufacturer from like a, an industrial manufacturer um, and then you put it in this big crazy tube furnace <sighs> cast iron holy shit um, okay so now we need to talk about cast iron pouring it the molds that you're going to use, the different ways that you might make molds and the different ways that you might pour it. And then we're going to um, talk about some different ways that you would use it in glass shops and the different things you'd use that for. And probably should touch on some architectural elements um, and the different structural components that iron has been part of. Um, I feel like I probably need to read a book or something on like anchors and architectural iron um, before I get back to you on this. Mostly I just want to talk about eggs and cooking with cast iron and make you feel okay about cooking with cast iron. So I feel like there's so much like heavy, lame dude stuff around like cooking with cast iron and aggressive dudes that want to tell you that you're doing it wrong. And I'm here to tell you that you're not doing it wrong. If you're fucking cooking, you're doing it right. Doesn't fucking matter. You're cooking with aluminum, you're doing it right. Um, are you not cooking? You're also doing it right. It's great. You're doing a great job. Um, and speaking of doing a great job, I should probably go do a great job on these fucking pumpkins. Um, they're going to be such beautiful pumpkins. Best pumpkins I've ever made. Palo Alto's finest right here. Um, well, gosh, it's been great having you listen. Uh, it's really wonderful having you here. I'm glad that you're enjoying this um, as much as I am because this shit is crazy. Um, hopefully, it's making a difference in your life. Hopefully, you're making some things. But if you're not making anything, you're also doing it right. All right, me and this dog are going to go get to work. Um, but I'll talk to you soon, all right? I love you a lot. Thanks for listening. Okay, this is the end of message. Bye for now.